If this happens to be your first Sunday, you picked a great time to be here because we are launching into a brand new series this morning. But before we get there, let me just piggyback on what you heard uh, Heather talk about uh, on the video. If you've been around a while, you know this. If you're newer here, you don't know this. But October is what we call Missions Month here at New Life. And that's a time where we just kind of pause what we're doing to just go back, reflect on our purpose and our mission as a church. Our mission at New Life is we exist to help people find and follow Jesus, and I would just add, in Asheville and around the world. And so uh, during Missions Month, we have a massive community outreach event called Fall Fest, and we have, like Heather said, hundreds of hundreds of people, sometimes almost a thousand people will be on our campus for that uh, one event. And so this is not just a way for us to uh, love on our community, although it is that. It's a way for us to really build bridges, relational bridges, into our community. In fact, some of you are here because of some of these outreach events that we've had, like Fall Fest or the Daddy Daughter Dance or different things. And so uh, it's a great chance for us to really do it up big. Man, we have inflatables for the kids, food, candy, hayride, the whole nine yards. It's all here. Um, but here's the deal. Like we, our staff can't do this alone, right? Like we have an awesome staff. Uh, they're not that awesome. And so we, we, need, we need your help, okay? So this whole deal requires uh, over 100 volunteers to pull this off. Now, this is going down October 12th, and I know that sounds like it's a long way away. It's really not. It's right around the corner. And so what we need you to do, if you're a part already of the Faith Family here at New Life, is go ahead and register. Just go to our website. You can do it right now. Go to our, uh, our app and register to help serve. October 12th, 3 to 6, you can help the whole time. You can even sign up just for like a one-hour slot and then kind of hang out with your kids or grandkids or whatever. But it's going to be a good time. But we do need your help, so please register for that. All right, today we are launching into a four-week series called Fight, Overcoming Conflict God's Way. And so if any of you still have any like remaining conflict in your life at the end of this four-week series, we're gonna have a boxing ring up here. We're, we're not gonna have a sermon that day. We're just gonna let you get up here and duke it out. Not really, we're not gonna do that. But by a, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever experienced conflict with another person? Married people, raise your hands, right? Every... Everybody should have your hand in the air. Listen, whether you're a follower of Jesus or a card-carrying atheist or anything in between, everyone, and I do mean everyone, deals with conflict in their lives. Dealing with conflict is one of the most important things that any of us will ever learn how to do. But here's, here's the problem. Nobody is teaching us how to do it. And so most of us just kind of stumble through life Wrecking things and wrecking people and wrecking relationships because we have no clue how to navigate conflict. And so what we're going to do for the next four weeks is we're going to dig into conflict. We're going to talk about why it exists. We're going to talk about the solution to the brokenness that conflict brings into this world and into our lives. And then we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at how to overcome conflict, specifically relational conflict, so our, in our personal relationships, and also in the context of the local church. And we're gonna do all of that using biblical principles, all right? So this is, this is really important stuff, maybe one of the more important series we've, we've done here. So it is, it is critical, friend, that we get this right. Now, confession time, all right? So, so for me as a pastor, one of the hardest things that I'm called to do is preach the whole counsel of God's word. 
And that, and that simply means that I, I don't get to skip the stuff that's hard. And I don't get to skip the stuff that's, uh, I, don't, I don't really like wanna talk about. And I don't even get to skip the stuff that God is still working out in my own life. Which means oftentimes I'm up here preaching on things that God is still untangling in my, my own heart. Does that, does that make sense? So understand, I'm, I'm not up here uh, browbeating you from like a place of self-righteousness. I want you to understand we are, we are in this boat together, uh, learning from God, being instructed by his word. I, I promise you, I do not have this conflict, conflict thing mastered. Just ask Cheryl, my wife. She'll tell you, he doesn't have it mastered. I'm just the one that got uh, the task of, of teaching what God has to say on this important subject. So look, I, I'm learning with you. Hopefully, I pray that we're being shaped together through this series by the word, by the spirit, um, together with you. Okay, so with that out of the way, today I'm gonna give you the bad news about conflict. You'll have to come back next week to get the good news. Don't you hate it when pastors do that? Yeah. I hate that. I hate myself right now. No, it, it, doesn't, it, does, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter uh, where you are in your spiritual journey. At, at our core, we all know something is wrong with the world that we live in, don't we? Like we just live in a busted up place. Now, so, some of you are, are more in tune with that brokenness because you've experienced that brokenness in very personal ways, right? So for some of you, you've had a, had a loved one who died of cancer, for some of you, you, you lost, a, lost a child. For others of you, perhaps you were abused as a kid. And then there are others of you who are still maybe just a little bit naive about it all. So you still think that humanity is basically good. And you're just kind of hopeful that if we're just kind of like sweet enough to people, that eventually our world will just burst into sunshine and rainbows and we can all hold hands and sing together. By the way, if you're in that naive camp, I love you. Um, uh, you guys are usually really happy and fun to be around, so let's be friends. But even, even if you're still in that kind of naive camp, right, we, we all look around at the staggering amount of violence in our world, the hatred that exists, right? right natural disasters, we just saw a hurricane kind of rip through the coast, right? Devastate entire communities. Dozens of people lost their lives. Seems like every week there's a new mass shooting somewhere. So we can look around and we kind of instinctively know that something is off. And our hearts long for a better version of this world, right? There's this kind of this ache in our soul for, for Eden. And society tries to explain kind of the jacked upness of our world by saying, hey, listen, we could solve this. If we could just, if we could solve things like poverty, if we could solve things like uh, kind of the lack of education or if we could get rid of the political right or if we could get rid of the political left, if we could just fix our laws, then everything would be as it should be. But deep down, we all know that what's broken is broken at the heart level. That's why we all think, say, and do things that are hurtful to other people and cause us regret, right? The seeds of brokenness are not out there. They are in here in our hearts. And so the solution can't come from out there. It has to be something that starts in here. And the truth is, I would argue this morning that the Bible provides a better and more comprehensive explanation of what's broken in our world and why. And it provides the better solution because it deals with the heart. 
And so we're gonna kick off this series by rewinding things all the way back to the beginning. And so if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and open it up, turn it on, head for Genesis chapter three. That's the first book in your Bible. We don't have time to read the first two chapters. We're gonna park in chapter three, but let me catch you up on what's going on in the Genesis narrative at this point. God is, God is creating everything that is, right? So he creates something and he says it's good. And then he creates something else and he says it's good. And then he creates something else and he said it's good. And finally he creates the crown jewel of his creation, man and woman. And he places them in the garden, right? And he gives them dominion or care over all creation. And he tells them to multiply and fill the earth. Code for have fun, right? This is good news. Perfect harmony, by the way, between God, mankind, and creation, This is the Hebrew word you maybe have heard of for shalom. Everything was perfect in every way, right? Now just imagine you're you're running around naked in a garden with your spouse, which is like the best day ever. And this is like every day for Adam and Eve, right? And God gave them one one rule, one rule only, okay? Now I want you to look, this will be on the screens for you. This is in Genesis 2, beginning of verse 15. It says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So one rule, get to run around naked with your wife in the garden, cool animals that can't kill you, right? So if you wanna go swim with a great white, no problem. Go ride a tiger, no problem. This is amazing, right? Perfect, close relationship with God. Just one rule, tons of awesome trees that you can eat from. One rule, don't eat from that one tree. Okay, this is not hard. This is not not complicated. This is not even mean from God. This is like a really generous deal for us. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking or some of you are are wondering, well, why, why did God even have to make that one rule? That's a really good question. Are you ready for the answer? I have no idea. I have no clue. I'm not God. Don't ask me questions like that, right? If I, like, if I, if I were to just take a stab at it, I would say, man, if, there, if, there's, if there's no option to not love God, then how do you know that you're really loving God? If there's not an option to, to disobey God, then how do you ever know the joy of obeying a perfect and holy God who loves you and has your best interest at heart? So that's, my, that's just my best guess, right? The, the text in Genesis doesn't really tell us. Bottom line, Paradise, one rule, don't screw it up. Guess what they do? Screw it up. Listen, the same thing you would have done, so don't get smug. Genesis (laughs) chapter three, beginning in verse one. Some of y'all know the story, right? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Okay, so what just happened? Satan shows up on the scene. Perfect paradise. 
And he starts chatting Eve up, right? He's like, did God, did God really, did God really tell you not to eat from the tree? Which, which by the way, is the oldest trick in the book. Right? Like, like, like this, this, this is the tactic that our enemy still uses to this day to deceive us. Did God, did God really mean what he said about whatever, whatever it is? You fill in the blank with whatever you struggle with in life. Did he, did he really mean that? Did, did, did God really mean that sex should be saved for a husband and a wife in a covenant of marriage? Man, that is so old school. Like surely if God was here today, he wouldn't put that in there. Or like watching stuff on the internet that I shouldn't be watching, man. That's, that's not such a big deal, man. It's, it's 2019. I'm not hurting anybody. And we get that little voice in our head that says, yeah, man, you, you deserve it. You deserve it. It's not really a big deal. It's not like you're hurting anybody. Just do it. God would understand. God would want you to be happy. And see, that's the one that as a pastor gets me, man. If I hear one more Christian living in outright rebellion and sin, say, God would want me to be happy. I'm gonna lose it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go postal, right? And we get that little voice that says, man, you, you deserve it, you deserve it. And so the, sa the same lies that the ancient serpent used in the garden, he is still using on us to this very day, by the way, with a massive success rate. And Eve, Eve is smart in the beginning, right? She says, no, 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 no. God said we can eat from any tree except for, for that one. If we, even, if we even touch the fruit of, of that tree, we're, we're gonna die. And Satan goes, no, 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 you won't. He just wants you to believe that God lied to you because he doesn't want you to be like him. And here's what I know about you, Eve. I, 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 bet, I bet you would actually make a better God than God. You would. Because you wouldn't make stupid rules like that, would you? You'd be great. Why don't you just eat it? You'll become like God and you, you can actually be God and you'll be, be glad you did. And Eve takes the fruit and she believes the lie that we all believe, by the way, that we know better than God. And in one act of rebellion introduces a sequence of chaos, conflict, and pain that has shattered a once perfect creation. I love the way um, a pastor named Jeff Ashley describes the, the fall in Genesis. This is, this is how he describes it. Listen to this. He says, something profound and pervasive happened in the garden. As the taste of fruit lingered on the lips of men and woman, a poison passed through their bodies and souls. The effects of the toxin were immediate and fatal. In this moment, all creation suffered a dramatic division as mankind was suddenly immersed into a struggle with the land, one another, themselves, and their creator. This hostility has marked the world ever since, and no one is immune. Friend, we are still living in the ashes of a world that was once a perfect, flawless, and pure paradise. And the conflict, pain, and chaos of this world was not God's original design. Now, lest any of you get sideways with Eve, and I've heard people say that before, like, oh man, if Eve, Eve, if she wouldn't have eaten the fruit, we still would be living in, in paradise. Listen, guys, 
Guess where Adam was when all this was going down? Look, look, look back at verse six. Look back. This will be on the screens for you. Listen to what the, the text says. It says this. She, Eve, took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was where? Who was with her, and he ate. Where is Adam while everything is at stake, when it is all on the line? It appears that the punk is standing right there next to Eve the entire time. Adam is watching his wife being deceived and lied to, watching it all go down like a coward with everything at stake. See, I think, I think a strong argument could be made that the first sin was not Eve eating the fruit. The first sin was Adam's passivity and his failure to lead, love, and ferociously protect his wife. This, kid, this, this cat is standing there watching a serpent deceive his wife, and he says nothing. Why isn't Adam shouting down the serpent? Why isn't he protecting Eve? Why isn't he loving her by slaying the serpent? Listen to me, male passivity, the failure to lead, love, serve, and protect was a sin then, and listen to me, it is a blight on our culture now and in the church today. Men who were designed by God, hardwired by God to lead, serve, love, and protect abdicating their roles and responsibilities before God. And we, we sit on the sidelines of life watching and doing nothing as a war wages around us for our wives and our kids. And the sin of Adam has bled into the hearts of men of every generation since. Men, if you're here, man, let me just talk to you for a second. If you're here this morning, I want you to understand you, you are not called and you have not been created to live a passive, boring life. This idea that we have, like in the church world, that men were called, and when we, we follow Christ, and, and God saves us and redeems us, that we're called to just like come sit in a church pew and be good little choir boys with kind of just passive little guys with our hands folded neatly in our lap. That, that is not the biblical picture or description of manhood. That is not what God has called you to. And God has designed you to be a ferocious leader, to love, to provide, to protect, to serve, both physically and spiritually, starting at home but never ending in the home, also in the church, in your neighborhood, in the city, and in the world. Male passivity is a massive problem, and you need to understand this. It is also a huge sin issue to God because it breaks his good design for men. And I'll show you what I mean by that in just a minute. Before, before, before we move on, I need you to see the pattern, the pattern that Adam and Eve followed so that you can recognize the same pattern playing out in your heart. So as we kind of work through these, just ask yourself, um, man, do I, do I have any symptoms of this, this kind of deadly disease that leads to conflict in my own heart? So here's, here's kind of the slippery slope, the, the dangerous pathway to sin. It always begins with, number one, a shallow trust in God a shallow trust in God. See, Adam and Eve believed in God, right? I mean, they, they spoke to him face to face, right? They, they knew God existed. They loved God. 
I think they would have been really good kind of church-going Christians by today's standards. Uh, they would have been the couple that would have been community group leaders. They would have been generous givers. They would have been the people going on short-term mission trips every summer, like all that good stuff. But they began to believe the lie that God wasn't trustworthy and that he didn't really have their best interests at heart. And they began to take things into their own hands because at the end of the day, their trust in God was really flimsy. And shallow trust in God will never hold up to the lies and temptations of our flesh. So listen, if you're, if you're struggling with a particular you know, sin pattern in your life, something that you just keep going back to again and again and again, let me, let me just challenge you this morning by asking you a question. What's your trust in God like this morning? Like, where, where's, your, where's your trust level with God? Because it, it could be that your trust level is shallow, and so you, you keep kind of bottoming out because God wants to take you to a deeper place of trust with him. See, and Adam and Eve had a shallow trust in God, and we're still living in the aftermath of their weak trust in God and in his goodness. So friend, watch out for a shallow trust in God because the consequences can be and oftentimes are catastrophic in our lives. Now here's the second clue that you're on this dangerous pathway that Adam and Eve were on towards deadly sin. Not only do you have a shallow trust in God, you can also begin to drift into a God complex. You say, man, Chris, what are you, what are you talking about, man? I know who God is, I know, I know I'm not God. Listen, every time you choose your way over God's way, you're showing that you have a God complex because you think you know better than God does, right? That, 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 that was the serpent's lie, wasn't it? Did, did, God, did God really say, nah, God didn't really say that. He, he just doesn't want you to be like him and you would make a better God than God anyway, right? We believe that lie every single time we choose sin over God. You have a God complex and so do I because we have a sin nature just like every human being since Adam and Eve. We are truly sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And the seeds of self-idolatry lurk and simmer in the hearts of each one of us. When we start to doubt God's ways, when we start to doubt God's plans, when we start to doubt his goodness and his character, when we think, yeah, listen, I, I know what God says. Yeah, I, I know what the Bible says, but, but nah, God, God just wants me to be happy at the end of the day. Like every time we do that, we're stepping into a God complex. And whenever we get to that place, disaster is just around the corner for us. Beware, friend, of placing yourself on the throne that belongs only to God. And the third step in the pathway towards sin, number three, is embracing full-blown rebellion against God. And that's when we get to the place where we go, yeah, go ahead and pass me the forbidden fruit. I know it's wrong, I don't, I don't even care. It feels good, it looks good, I want it. I don't care what God has said. I want what I want and I want it right now. And I'll worry about the consequences later. I don't even care about the consequences. And when we get to that place, we have already embraced a full out rebellion against God because we are willingly just kind of breathing in the toxins of sin and rebellion into our heart and our soul and we don't even care. 
And once we get there, sin is imminent because we have already turned our hearts away from God and his good plan for us. See, sin follows the same pattern for you as it did in the garden all those years ago. It begins with shallow trust in God, developing a God complex, and then finally full-blown rebellion. Friend, watch out for these deadly symptoms in your heart. Okay, back to the narrative in, in Genesis. I want us to notice their response now to sin because I think we also follow the pattern of their response once they fell into sin, right? Verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they, this is funny, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, okay? So three, three common responses to sin in our life. And again, we, we typically follow the same pattern that Adam and Eve did in, in Genesis. Number one is we typically try to cover up our sin. Okay, now, for most of us, we don't use fig leaves to cover up our sin, right? But for most of us, we cover up our sin by minimizing and justifying. So we come up with all kinds of creative words so that we don't have to call our sin, sin. So a lot of us really like the word mistake now, don't we? I didn't sin, I just made a mistake. I'm only human, it's just, it, was just a, it was just a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes, it wasn't that bad. Everybody does it and we begin to minimize and rationalize and justify and we pretend that our sin isn't the full frontal assault on God's character that it actually is. And when we do that, look, when we do that, we look just as ridiculous as Adam and Eve did standing there with their fig leaf speedos trying to cover up before a perfect, all-knowing, wise, and holy God. Ridiculous. All right? Continues on. It gets better. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which, by the way, how cool would that be? Dude, they had it made. God would come down and talk with them and fellowship with them in the, the cool of the evening. It was just amazing, right? Shalom. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, and I love this, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. Now, let me go back to the responsibility, the passivity of man thing. Eve ate the fruit first. When God came to the garden after the fall, who was he looking for? But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, hey, Adam, where are you? And Adam responded, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now this is one of the most devastating passages in all of the scriptures. Because once sin enters the world, peace is shattered, unity is destroyed and relational harmony is crushed. And our world has been in an all-out rebellion against God ever since. Now understand this. Before sin, there was no shame. There was no even awareness of our own nakedness, right? But now they are filled with shame. They are filled with regret and guilt. And they do one of the dumbest things ever recorded in human history, right? They, they, they hear God coming and they run and hide behind a tree. Now what did that conversation go like? Like, hey, here, here he comes. He'll never find us behind the tree that he just made. <laughs> like, this is so dumb, right? 
It reminds me of when, when our kids were, were babies. Maybe some of you experienced this with your kids or, or your grandkids. But when our kids would, were babies, they had this thing where they would put their hands over their eyes. And when they had their hands over their eyes, they thought nobody else could see them because they couldn't see anybody else, right? So we kind of play along with them. And so they would do that. And we're like, oh, where did, where did you go? Where did you go? And they do this. We go, oh, you scared me. I didn't know that you were there, right? And, and babies do this because their brains aren't fully developed. We do this because sin makes us really, really dumb, right? Now, I would just wager that there are some of you who are doing the same exact thing. You're trying to hide and you're trying to run from God. I'm just gonna tell you how that story ends. It's not gonna go any better for you than it went for the first human beings ever. And that's the second way that we typically respond to sin in our life, right? We try to cover up. And then number two, we try to run. Try to run from God. See, our tendency oftentimes when we sin, instead of running into the arms of our loving father, is to run away from him. And so oftentimes, if someone is, is kind of tangled up in sin, they'll, they'll stop praying, right? And they'll stop reading their Bible. They'll typically pull out of their small group. They'll stop attending worship. They're run, 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 running, which is the dumbest thing that you could possibly do. Go read the book of Jonah, right? We went through that early last year. Go, go read the book of Jonah. But a lot of us run anyway. Now, now this, is, this is rich. Adam's response that we're about to read. I love his response to being completely busted by God, right? Just imagine, you have Adam, he's busted now. God has found him hiding behind his little tree like a moron, and he's, he's standing there with a fig leaf scotch-taped to his body, right? <laughs> Looking like an idiot, right? Now, this, this is epic. Watch, watch his response, verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the, uh, the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So what's the first thing Adam does? <laughs> he points at Eve. She did it. <laughs> she ate first. God, I was minding my own business. I was working hard like you told me to do in the garden. She rolled up. She stuffed that fruit right in my mouth. God, I am just as disappointed in her as you are. <laughs> I am shocked and outraged. Not only does he blame Eve, notice he also subtly blames God. He goes, the woman you gave me did this. So God, y'all worked this out. It was your idea to make her, not mine. It was her idea to eat the fruit, not mine. So I'm gonna get back over here to what I'm doing. I'm gonna get back to work. I'm gonna let you two hash it out since it's y'all's deal. Right? And Adam is shifting blame like nobody's business, and he is not the only one. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So Eve points at the snake, and he says, he did it, right? They're both blame shifting like crazy, which is the third way that we typically respond when we fall into sin, right? We cover up, we run from God, and number three, we blame shift. We are masters at this. Now, I've been guilty at this, of this. You probably have been too. Now, Cheryl and I, we don't argue, but occasionally we'll have very heated dialogues, right? Don't, don't argue, occasionally heated dialogue. And occasionally I'll say something really dumb in one of those conversations. And I'll have to come back and I'll have to apologize for it. And when I was younger and dumber, I, I would do this. So don't, don't, don't do this, 
So I would come back to her after saying something really dumb and I would say, hey, sorry, but. And by the way, whenever you apologize and you tack on a but, you've already lost. Just go ahead and pack it in and go home. You are a loser at apologizing. Go repent before God, right? But that's what I would do. I would go to Cheryl and say, hey, baby, I'm, I'm sorry I said that, but I need you to know that I said that because you said this. Because you did that. I wouldn't have done it except for the fact that you did this or you said that, which was just a way for me to blame shift my own sin instead of owning my own junk and apologizing like a man. And so we do the same thing. We cover up, we run from God, we blame shift just like Adam and Eve because we are broken people in a broken world. And this is our go-to when we have conflict with God or other people. And it continues this cycle of chaos and sin and brokenness and conflict. And in verse 14, God is going to begin to lay out the aftermath or the consequences of their rebellion, beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God looks at the serpent after the fall and he says, get on your belly. Now you're gonna slither on the ground and you're gonna eat dust from now until eternity. And then God tells Satan, hey, listen, one day, one day Eve's offspring, one of her descendants, you're gonna wound his heel. You're going to injure him, but you need to understand this. He's gonna crush your head. And this is the first messianic prophecy in the whole Bible all the way back in the garden, Genesis chapter three. So I want you, I want, I want you to, don't, don't miss this. I want, you to, I want you to see this. In the middle of the mess, in the middle of the brokenness, in the middle of the pain, the regret, the guilt, in the middle of the tears, God goes, I love you and I will pursue you. I will send one who is going to restore shalom, one who will one day conquer sin, death, and hell on your behalf. And so God injects love and hope right into the middle of the pain of the fall of mankind. And listen to me, this is the God that we worship. This is really good news. My favorite depiction of Genesis 3.15, this first messianic prophecy, is a painting. If I were... I'm not an artist at all, but if I were an artist, I would paint this on a really big canvas and I would hang it in my office. But I wanna show you a picture of this painting. Right there, there it is. So this is a picture of a painting and it depicts Eve on the le left and she's got the fruit in her hand and she's dejected because of the fall. You see the serpent wrapped around her leg and you have Mary there who's comforting her, placing her hand on the unborn Jesus with her foot crushing the skull of the serpent as a foreshadow of what Jesus would one day do on her behalf. And isn't that beautiful? That right in the middle of the chaos and the pain, God gives us a promise that he will send one to restore shalom one day. And that is the God that we worship. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's the first kind of introduction of relational conflict, by the way. We'll get to that in a second. 
And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God lays the, the fallout from their rebellion and sin, and he gives us kind of four main things, four main consequences, and then we're gonna, we're gonna land the plane. So God, first of all, he goes, ladies, from now on, childbirth is going to be painful. By the way, ladies, you are my heroes. Cannot even begin to imagine pushing another human being out of my body, right? But apparently it wasn't painful in the beginning. God says, now it's gonna hurt and it's gonna hurt a lot. And then he looks at Adam and he says, men, work is now going to be hard. It's gonna be tiresome. It's gonna be wearisome at times. Now understand this, work, work was instituted before the fall, right? I think a lot of people have this impression that work was a result of the fall. It was not. Work was a part of God's good design before the fall of man. It's just that now we work by the sweat of our brow, meaning that it, all, it won't always be joyful like it once was. Right now at times it's gonna be exhausting, it's gonna be hard, it's gonna be taxing, it might even be depressing at times, right? That's the first fallout of our sin. Number one is the introduction of pain into our world. Everything is hard now. Everything hurts now. I get out of bed in the morning and almost every single day something new hurts. I'm, I'm, I'm 39. Like I don't know how you old timers do it. Now I know, I know we don't have any old timers here. We're all young here. But in other churches where they have old timers, I don't know how they do it. I'm 39 and stuff hurts every single day. Having babies, pain now. Working a job is gonna be a pain in the butt now, right? Because you're gonna have to deal with that jerk of a boss. Our bodies are falling apart day by day. This is part of the fallout from our sin and rebellion. Pain gets introduced into the world, letting us know that something is broken. So fallout number two, not only are we gonna have pain now, we're also gonna have relational conflict now. We go back to verse 16. God tells Eve that her desire will be contrary to her husband, but that he will rule over her. This is the introduction of relational conflict. God says, Eve, you will desire to control, manipulate, and dominate your husband in a sinful way. And instead of him responding in love and serving you the way that he ought to, the way that he's designed to, he's gonna rule over you. In other words, he's gonna use his brute strength to get what he wants. And this is broken in so many ways, and yet don't we see this playing out, even to this day, in our marriages and in our homes? And this is one of the most tragic results of sin is that it not only affects our relationship with God, it not only introduces pain into our world, but it also destroys our relationship with one another. And that's a tragedy. The third fallout that God says is gonna happen because of us choosing sin, number three is death. God looks at him and he says, from dust you were taken and now from dust you will return. And for the first time, the very first time, death is introduced into this world. See, our conflict and our rebellion against God results in death. And now we live in a world where babies die of cancer. And young moms die, and young dads die, and kids grow up without parents, and shalom has been shattered. 
And deep down in our hearts, we ache for Genesis 1 and 2, don't we? Don't we ache for that perfection, that harmony, that peace between God and us and creation? Because we know instinctively that something is wrong, that we were created for more than just 60 or 70 years on this planet, that we were designed for something better than a world where kids die from cancer and kids starve to death in Africa. And we ache for that garden that we lost so long ago. And that's why, even if, listen, even if you don't believe any of this stuff, like you're not on the Jesus train, you don't know about all this Bible stuff, you don't, you're not sure about any of this stuff, even if that's you, you still know deep down at the soul level that something is wrong when you go to the funeral of a five-year-old. It makes you angry, and it should, because this is not the original design. This is a broken shadow of the original. And chapter three ends with God removing Adam and Eve from the garden and placing an angel with a flaming sword there to guard it. And this is the most tragic fallout of them all. Not only do we get pain, not only do, not only do we get relational conflict and death, we now experience, number four, separation from God. And we live in a state of brokenness and conflict with God and one another. And listen, hear me say this. There is, there's absolutely nothing we can do to get ourselves out of this vicious cycle. Nothing. And that's the bad news. But there is good news. As we close this morning, let me invite you to bow your heads. We're gonna consider some of these things together. And we're gonna pray and we're gonna sing. But before we get out of here, I want, I want you to understand this. Genesis 3 is not just the story of Adam and Eve. Genesis 3 is your story. It's, it's our story together, right? You, you have believed the lies. We have believed the lies. We have together rebelled against God, and now everything is broken, and there is nothing you can do in your own strength to fix it. So hear me say, like, no, no amount of good deeds you do, no amount of, like, clean living, prayer, Yoga, meditation, serving at homeless shelters, like none of that is gonna fix the core problem because something is broken deep inside each one of us. It just is. But understand this, there, there is someone who can fix what's broken inside of you. We saw a glimpse of it. We're gonna talk about it more next week, but we saw a glimpse, just a little glimpse of it in Genesis 3.15. There is one who has come to rescue you in Jesus. And so listen to me. If, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you and he came for you and he will heal you and he will forgive you and he will restore you if you will turn away from your sin and place your faith and your trust in him. And if you have never done that, if you're here this morning, I don't care if you're a good religious boy or girl or church boy or girl, you know all the Sunday school answers, I don't care about any of that. If you have not done that, if you've never surrendered your life and pledged your allegiance to Jesus Christ, that is your first 
move this morning before you leave this room. Because none of the stuff that we talk about today or none of the stuff that we're going to talk about for the next three weeks, none of it will matter until you get this sorted out and you get this right. So if you don't have a real, tangible, life-transforming relationship with your Creator through Jesus Christ, that must happen first. That's your first move. So if that's you this morning, let me just say trust in Jesus. Put your faith and your trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we, I confess, God, for me, I'm good at wrecking things in my own life. We're good as people about wrecking almost everything in our lives, including relationship, relationship with you, relationship with others. God, we have all rebelled against you. We all choose our way over you again and again, almost on a daily basis. And yet, God, your, your love for us is relentless. God, thank you for making a way out of the brokenness of conflict with you and with one another, God, through, through Jesus. So would you help us this morning just to, just to place our trust in him fully, God, help us to find life and freedom in the only one who can truly set us free. And we pray it all in the strong and the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand and worship.